Welcome, everybody. Uh, so glad that you're spending your, your Sunday night here with us at School Psych Podcast. Um, interesting topic tonight that I'm sure is on everyone's minds with a lot of um, a lot of stuff going on, I think, with state changes. And I know my district is um, putting dyslexia on paperwork and things like that, whereas before it wasn't actually there. Um, so really excited to be talking about dyslexia tonight. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist. I'm working in the state of Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. I would like to remind everyone how to participate. If you're watching us live on YouTube right now, you can put your comments and questions right in the live chat box, which should be on the right of your screen. And you can also participate on Facebook, either on School Psyched Podcast page or School Psyched Your School Psychologist page. I'll be looking for notifications. You can post to page. You can send inbox messages. And on Twitter, using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. And here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State. This is Peaches. I bring the cats to the podcast. <laughs> um, we had a poll going on our Facebook page. We had tons of participation in that, so I'm going to go ahead and, and read that briefly. Um, as you know, the in 2015, the Department of Ed released a memo effectively saying, schools stop being so scared of dyslexia. So we kind of wanted to feel for how people get a feel for how people felt about the term dyslexia and how they use that in their practice. So the um, vast majority of people, we had 64 votes, they identify or recognize dyslexia, but you still need to meet IDEA criteria for LD to get an IEP. Um, the second place vote um, was 28 votes. Dyslexia can be served on the 504. We had 19 votes as people felt they were qualified to evaluate for dyslexia. 16 votes, dyslexia is thought of as a medical diagnosis. Nine votes, I do not feel qualified to evaluate for dyslexia. Um, and nine votes, also dyslexia is recognized on my district's eligibility paperwork in some manner. Six votes, a dyslexia label qualifies a student for particular interventions slash services not otherwise available. Five votes, the term is too broad and ha doesn't have meaning for use or me in my district. Um, Two votes, it's a special education category, and two votes, dyslexia is not even spoken of in my district. So we had it have like um, both comfort level and um, experience and agreement and disagreement um, kind of across the board with the topic, which is really cool. And um, yeah, sorry, I'm having a hard time speaking tonight. I hope I'm not sounding terrible. So, um, and I want to introduce our guest, um, Ali Sheva Schwartz is a dyslexia researcher. Um, mother, wife, intelligence redefiner, and podcast host. She's on a mission to decode dyslexia, the dyslexic mind and empower the dyslexic community to fully understand both the strengths and difficulties of the processing style. Both her academic ba background in cognitive science and education, as well as her own personal experiences with dyslexia, allow Elisheva um, to draw on a unique blend to both personal and the scientific. She often writes about dyslexia, cognition, learning, creativity, intelligence, and maintains an occasional column at the Creativity Podcast. Additionally, she often speaks at universities and conferences with some of her latest speaking engagements, including the International Dyslexia Association panel and the University of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, my pleasure. It's so special to be talking to you all and to be talking to a bunch of school psychologists because I never throughout any of my childhood or high school years thought that the work that I would be doing in my career would have anything to do with schools and that I would choose to speak to a school psychologist after I graduated school. 
So it's funny how how things unfold, and it's special to be here jamming with you guys. Thank you so much. We're really excited to um, have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I know you, you have personal experience with dyslexia, and um, and you have um, a lot of experience working with as an advocate for students and parents. Can you tell us how this evolved? How did you get started? What was kind of the first work that you approached and what you're doing now? Sure. So do you want the story that starts from, like, second grade, or do you want the story <laughs> like youth level or from when I started my blog? Whichever story you're comfortable sharing, whichever story you'd like to share. It sounds sure. interesting. I like the second grade Elishiva. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So like many dyslexic children, I did really well in preschool and my parents would come in for PTA meetings and they would say, you know, Elisheva loves circle time and she loves listening to stories and telling us about her weekend and her brothers. But by the time I got to first grade, school began to be more challenging for me. And second grade, and by third grade, I was at a real impasse where teachers were calling my parents and saying, look, there's this huge gap between Elisheva's academic school skills and the rest of her classmates. Something's not adding up. We think you should get her assessed. And that's when I began my journey kind of trying to navigate special education getting services, why was I learning differently than everybody else. And so at that point, I got assessed for just a general learning disability. And what that gave me access to was research rooms. And I used to be in this huge school. There were about, um, I forget how many students, but th there were, you know, maybe whatever. It was a huge school. And on the loudspeaker, they used to call out my name and three other students, and they would say, now it's time to go to the resource room. And so nervous and embarrassed, I used to just, like, imagine the floor would open and swallow me up. And I would slink out of the classroom and go to my resource room. And when I got there, it wasn't a space where I felt like, finally, this is an educational environment that is supportive for my learning style. Really what it felt like was just babysitting, and there was a lot of – you know, very adventurous and active boys that were making spitballs and throwing them at the walls and a lot of, you know, reinforcement toys from the 99 cent store. I think I got like five bottles of sparkly nail polish. They were constantly trying to like reinforce our behavior, get us to do some worksheet or other. Um, and my academic achievement began to slide and it went from bad to worse and as I was, my academic achievement was suffering, I began to act out emotionally in the classroom. And I started getting kicked out of class. I started getting sent to the principal's office. And school became a really scary, cortisol-induced, stressful place. And um, by the time I was in fifth grade, I was getting suspended for days at a time. And to fast forward, by the time I got to high school, which is really kind of the climax of the story where things kind of came to, came to it, uh, a boiling point was it was when I was in junior year and there was all this talk in the school about getting yourself ready for college and making sure you have your APs in place and making sure you're thinking about the colleges and you're studying for your SATs and you got your tutors. And it was all this pressure about this next stage. And I so much 
wanted to have opportunity available to me where I wouldn't be bored and I would be able to catch up. And I felt like this is my opportunity to prove everybody wrong. This is my opportunity to all of a sudden just have amazing grades and get like an amazing score on the SAT. And then everybody who ever doubted my abilities ever will be so sorry that they doubted my abilities because I would be like in Harvard. So I had like all these expectations on myself and and the reality of where I was holding was totally different. I was struggling in a lot of my classes, even though I was bored in a lot of my classes. And I remember one day in junior, as when I was a junior in high school, I got a test, a history test back. And I was the one who sat with three of my friends and I taught them everything that was on the test. And then we got the the test back and I got the lowest score by a large margin. I got like way worse than my friends. I remember just looking at this saying like, I taught them the information. How did I do so badly? And of course it was all essay questions and the te- there were red marks. I had to hand write it and there were red marks all over my spelling and my grammar. And I misread the question. And I remember running out of the classroom and I ran to the principal's office and I knocked on her door and I, and I said, I think, I think I have like a learning disability. I, I said, I don't think I'm reading the questions right. And I feel really frustrated because I feel like all the information is in my head and it's just not being expressed. And I can't show that I really understand the information. And she drew a bell curve and she said, look, not all of us are going to get 100 on everything. And she's like, this is what a lot of students don't understand, is there are always going to be students that score on the top, and there are always going to be students that score in the middle, and there's always going to be students that score on the bottom. And she said, but if you're insisting, then we, you, can, you can go and get assessed. And she said, here I have a friend who will do the assessment for you. And she wrote down her friend's information, and it all had to be done, done privately because she said, you know, if, if you want us to help you, in any which way, it needs to be done like on a quick timetable. So do it privately, which ended up being like a couple grand for my parents. And this is the person that you can do. Mm-hmm. So I got went and I got assessed. And the person had no background in educational psychology, but only had a background in psychopathology. Did a cognitive and psychocognitive eval, but was the entire evaluation was said. Although it does seem to be that Elisheva has some academic weeks, the bigger issue at play is that she came into my office and had a very strong perspective on what her needs are. And I think she has authoritative, like, I think she has issues with authority. So what I suggest we do is we don't give her accommodations. It's a crazy story, but the only reason I said it, say it is because if it happens to me, maybe it happens to some other people out there, that we don't give her accommodations because it will feed into her need to control the adults in her environment as evidence of her Rorschach inkblot. So even though I was in 11th grade, I couldn't spell the word because I couldn't spell the word comfortable table could hardly spell my name. Uh, my academic skills were like on the third or fourth grade level. That became the, the, that became the report from the psych about. And we're getting to the end of the story. But when I heard that it was, this was like my last resource that I was reaching for, that I really thought it was going to help me understand myself and my learning style and get me into a good college. When that fell apart, the next, around that time, within the next few days, I woke up and I told my mom I can't face another day at school. 
I ended up dropping out of school for a half a year. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to go back to school or maybe I was just going to start working and reach out to some companies or some people that my parents knew. Um, eventually, I did go back to school and study cognitive psych and psychology and education and ended up blog, which turned into an online consultancy. But that's a little bit of my story. Wow. That, that's heartbreaking. That moment with the psychologist is just heartbreaking. And so when you took that time off of school, how did you, how were you resilient enough to get back into it and, and go back to school and go to college? What were you, what were your supports? What were, what were my supports? Well, the, the answer would be different right after the supports that I drew on as I got older and as I continued. But right, right at that point, my parents were covering for me because they had a doctor's note that I had mono. And my parents knew that I couldn't face another day and they were covering for me. And then I was in a private school and the principal called and said, if she's not in school tomorrow, she's getting kicked out. And so it was about half a year where they said, I, where, where kind of they turned a blind eye. And then it was the kindness was they were at their limit. And then, um, and then I really needed to decide if I was going to go back to school or not. Mm-hmm. And I did. And it was challenging. But eventually, what really drove me, I, I eventually, I got connected to my own learning goals, my own curiosities. And actually, for many individuals with dyslexia, as the years go on, school tends to get easier, not more difficult. So usually when you're in middle school, the teachers say, you better do your homework and you better work very hard because when you get to high school, it's not going to be this easy. And when you're in high school, your teachers say, you know, you better do your reports and work very hard because when you get to college, it's not going to be this easy. But for a lot of um, dyslexic individuals and individuals that are more alternative learners, as the information gets less about procedural information, less about memorization, and as there's increased flexibility and ability to really pick the classes that resonate with you, that have the best teaching style for a teacher that works with you, and are more personally meaningful to you, school can actually get easier as the grades go on. So eventually, I took quite a bit of time before going to university, and then when I went to university, I went really guided by my own personal curiosities, by fields that were deeply personal and meaningful to me. That, I mean, that, that whole story is just so heartbreaking and upsetting to hear, I think, as a school psychologist, because it's like the opposite of what we strive to accomplish. And it, it very much reminds me, and I know you're um, familiar with and friendly with um, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who came onto the podcast and told kind of a similar thing. And it's just... Oh, really? I didn't know he came onto this show. That's so- <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, when I when you talked about, you know, the bell curve, and I'm just like, oh, geez. You know, just... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot has a lot has changed. Even just the internet, like even just that there are professionals like you guys that can watch a school psych show, like you're doing, and put this important information out there. Also, my principal came from she had a private she came from a psychotherapeutic background. She had a private practice, and then she was hired by the founder of this private school for the school. So she didn't have an education background. I just you know my own idiosyncratic, funny unfolding of my life, but she didn't have an educational background. She had a psychopathological background. So everything was viewed through the lens of psychopathology. And especially with individuals that are not thriving in the school system, you're going to see a lot of symptoms of psychopathology. So it's very easy to notice them and think that's the story if you don't have a broader lens to know why are we seeing that kind of symptomology. How would you recommend, how do you talk to kids when you're, 
Um, when you've been through an assessment process, their, you know, their progress in reading and writing ha isn't where um, you might want, and they've been through the RTI process and the assessment is there. How do you explain results to kids? How, what would you say is kind of the best way to describe it to protect their sense of self and their, you know, their um, hope and their um, ability to to continue to, to strive for their goals? Yeah, that's such a good, good, good question. And I'm sure you guys, with the work that you do, understand the importance of transparency and clearly speaking to children so that they have the ability to make sense out of their experiences. Because what I never had was nobody sat me down and explained to me what was going on, why all my friends could just get 100s on their spelling tests and I failed week after week after week. Nobody gave me that information, so I was at a loss how to make sense out of this. And so I made the sense, I employed my own sense making, and I told myself, you know, everybody else just works harder. I'm lazy. You know, everybody else understands something I don't understand, or I'm not as smart as everybody else. Um, and so it's really important to help children have that causal cause and effect mechanism to make sense out of their reality. I think it's really helpful to understand dyslexia from a holistic perspective. So it's not as if, you know, people that have a dyslexic crossing style, their brains are exactly the same as somebody else and there's just a deficit in spelling. Because the brain doesn't work that way. The brain doesn't have de just deficits in spelling or reading or just deficits in specific maths, um, procedural information. It's really, there are parts of the brain that deal with underlying cognitive skills and those subjects that need those cognitive skills you'll either have a strength or a weakness. So the manifestation of having a dyslexic thinking style will show up in spelling, but it will show up in other areas of your life as well. So really shifting from this is a difficulty with these specific tasks, this is a way you process information, and you'll notice that it will show up with your grocery list, it might show up with the way you organize your backpack, it might show up with your spelling, it might also show up you know, with your creativity and your innovation. And that leads on to the next point, which is seeing it with both a strength and a weakness. No other, no aspect in our cognitive or psychological profile ever is just a strength or just a weakness. Everything is always two sides at the same point. Whether you're talking about introversion or extroversion or neuroticism, all these traits all have both their strengths and their weaknesses. And actually, I started my entire project, the Dyslexia Quest, in the blog. It's because after I had my oldest son, and I had some time to um, transition out of the career I was in, I was in the fashion industry, and do something new and different. I wanted something flexible and on the computer. And I started the Dyslexia Quest, and it was to answer this one question, which is we often hear about the gifts of the dyslexia dyslexia and the dyslexic advantage. And when I went to school, I was told that that's not scientifically valid, and that is something that's kind of like an old wives' tale that is true that there are many dyslexics that are super talented, but it's correlational and there's no specific cause and effect. And I said, I don't know if that's true because I feel like I've read about some other studies. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become obsessed with answering this question. What is the scientific background to understanding learning differences and if there are strengths with dyslexic crossing styles, strengths of ADHD, strengths of alternative learners. And I started reaching out to every person that was involved in the cognitive science and that was actually running research projects and getting involved with the research that they're doing, interviewing them and talking to them. And what I found out conclusively is that there's a lot of evidence that you see this trade-off where there's this spectrum where 
on the one hand, you might have dyslexic type thinkers, and on the other hand, in terms of some aspects, an Asperger's type thinker, where on the one hand, dyslexia, it's big picture at the expense of detail, so forest at the expense of trees, very good with narrative, very good at big picture, very good at getting the gist, but we struggle with the date and the names and memorizing procedural information. And on the other hand, kind of an Asperger's syndrome, where very good date and the names and memorizing the procedural information, but might really struggle with the gist and the creativity and the narrative. And so the science really bears out that there is that trade-off. So I think when you're talking to students, first of all, talk to talk about it in terms of a difference, not a disability, even though without ignoring the fact that in some environments, you really might be less, you might, you know, really have less skills than your friends in some environments. But if you went into another environment, you might be more skilled than your friends. So it's not ignoring the fact that it might really be difficult right now to, to memorize your spelling words, or it might really be difficult to, you know, write essay answers without a computer, without a system text. So you don't want to negate the fact that it might really be difficult, but you also want to find some way to begin a dialogue where you presence them to their skills and their abilities, because very often these students, they know they're great at Lego, they know they're great at making up stories and imaginary play, but they never thought that there was any relationship between their imaginary play and their forts, like elaborate forts that they built, and the fact that they're having a difficult time picking up some language-based skills. And so to be able to like draw the connection, I think, would be very helpful. Love that. Yes, and I... I I think about how often colloquially um, people talk about dyslexia as the um, MIT um, disease. disability <laughs> disease. I, I think that's a, a difficult Disease is a problematic word, but I actually, yeah. in MIT, somebody was just talking to me that they were just there on, in, in some kind of like tunnel between two buildings, it says like dyslexia at MIT. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. That's really yeah, cool. and I think it's complicated because when I was growing up, no one ever talked of like I never I vaguely heard the word dyslexia. I thought dyslexia had to do with writing things backwards or seeing things backwards or letter reversals. That was the only association I had with dyslexia. But definitely nobody talked about the strengths of dyslexia or the gifts of dyslexia. And so when I came across it, it was so empowering, and I feel like it described my life. A lot of these younger kids, they're raised by moms and dads and school professionals that are getting this important information on the internet. And the shadow side of that is they feel like there's all this pressure, like I'm dyslexic, I'm not doing well in school, so now I need to all of a sudden like start a company and be an entrepreneur at 12 and be super creative <laughs> and innovative and like, like you know, shock everybody with like how creative my stories are, which has a shadow side also, because just because you might have a proclivity towards this kind of this big picture thinking, sometimes it's, you know, you can't show your worth in this really transactional way of, like, on a standardized test, so let's find another way to standardize your worth. Like, mm -hmm. you have an art class, which is just another way for, for parents and teachers and students all to be able to, like, find a little square that they fit into and prove their okayness. And so I think, like, as somebody that's a real advocate for some of the strengths that are in the selected population, I also think it's important to be aware of that kind of pressure and that kind of like, this is who you are now. You better be showing you, you, you better be worth all your difficulties in school. You better be worth, you know, all your failed spelling tests and show some <laughs> in other places. That's a lot of pressure. What do you recommend in the younger grades in terms of, um, you know, like 
the second and third graders who may not be um, at developmentally ready for some of the assistive technology. Maybe they can't type yet, and and they're still really working on these, um, you know, skills at, at the skill level and struggling. That that to me is a a time when it's the, this this concept of, of helping them form their sense of self is really, really important because if we can get them, you know, to the older grades where they feel great about their profile of strengths and weaknesses and they can, you know, lean into those strengths and showcase those strengths, if we can get them there, you know, I, I start to feel better about how, about where they are, about how they see themselves. But it's those little ones that always feel um, concerning to me because they – they have to work on the, you know, the handwriting and the, um, and the spelling and the reading. What do you suggest for, for um, teachers and parents of, in those early years? Yeah, so for sure evidence-based or indelegating training is that's the time when you want to get it in, um, in those early years. But also it's a really delicate balance of those students not spending the majority of the day doing things that come harder to them than for everybody else because it's cognitively draining and it's emotionally draining. So it becomes a balance where parents and school professionals need to be really curious about the things that light them up and the things that they really enjoy and making sure that there's still a lot of that in their life. And it's not that every day after school, I mean, different school districts are different. Some people do it in school, some people do it after school. But for a lot of families, it's a lot of tutoring and it's a lot of emphasis on schoolwork and if you think about it, us as adults, we would never pick a job or an industry where every day we're using a skill set that is foreign to us. If every day we're using a skill set that was foreign to us, usually we pivot pretty quickly out of those careers. And usually we get um, feedback reports from our superiors and they say, I don't know if this is the right industry for you. Naturally, we have the luxury to at least some aspect of the day we're doing something that is somewhat aligned with our skills. And it's very exhausting to be spending so much of your day focused on things that don't come naturally to you. So, of course, this is the time where you want to get that Oregonian-based training because their minds are young and flexible and you can make a big difference. But you also want to make sure that it's not crowding out everything else. It's a great way to look at it. Um, so, from the school perspective, I know that you work a lot with parents and advocacy and, you know, informing um, people about what dyslexia is and how, how to, um, you know, the, like you just said, the strengths and weaknesses and everything. Um, what, what do you see as the biggest problem on the school end? Because sometimes I feel like there's a miscommunication between parents or advocacy groups and the school, and we're just not seeing eye to eye, sometimes because we're not using the same terminology or because we're not coming from the same. I think we're all in it you know, to help children, and we all want to um, see good, great outcomes, and we want to um, see children succeed. And sometimes um, I think it can get contentious and get – you know, like it looks like to both sides that, you know, that that's not what we're in it for. And that's not the case. So I'm just wondering, do you, do you see that with with your work with parents where they come back and, and have this frustration with the school? Um, and what can the school do to kind of speak yeah. their language and, and address some of the concerns that the parents have that maybe we're not picking up on? Yeah, that's such a good question. And one of the reasons I created my course, which is all about supporting parents and building um, the skills around self-esteem and resilience for their students, is parents, I felt like, were putting so much on their, so much on the schools 
that, you know, I, if my child is struggling because they're having a difficult time with spelling or with homework or whatever it is, that the all the frustration went to the teachers and all the frustration went to the school without any part of that conversation being how do we parent our children so that they can be really resilient in the face of situations that might be difficult to them? How do we sit with them in their challenge? How do we empower them to deal with situations that might be that might be tricky without all of a sudden, you know, feeling like, you know, I need to homeschool my child or, you know, I wish that the school was, a, you know, I wish that I can afford to send my school to some super progressive model that is super individualistic and child-centered that is almost impossible to scale and isn't really financially viable for most people. And I think that, you know, it can be, I think it can be a tough situation because when a parent sees a second grader or third grader saying, you know, I want to run away so I never have to go back to school and I can't face another day and every day in school is sadness and, you know, just all these like very intense feelings that can be a lot for a parent. And at the same time, you know, a teacher is doing their best to reach sometimes, you know, 25, 30 kids that all have very different learning profiles, very different learning needs. Very often girls will internalize their symptomology and their frustrations so the teachers don't even see it until they come home and then they cry to their parents and they don't want to go to school. And the teacher just saw a girl that was very compliant, that was doing everything she, would told, she was told because she really wanted that positive affirmation from her teacher. And then it all comes out with her parents. So, uh, um... I think it's difficult. I, I think it's difficult. I, I actually would love to turn that question on to you, and I want to know, like, in what ways do you think that 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 what in what ways do you think the schools need to hear more from the dyslexic community? Because I actually don't do so much work with the schools, particularly. I work much more with the community. I um, either I'm talking about dyslexia and teaching about dyslexia in terms of workshops or I'm working with parents. So I don't know that much about that question, but I'd love to turn it to you guys. Um, so, I mean, my thoughts, I think that sometimes the miscommunication comes from, as a school psychologist, at least, we work under the IDEA umbrella. We work under special education and we've got, you know, however many categories um, for our state regulations. And so, for better or for worse, we're always trying to like put put kids into these categories in order to see if they qualify for services. Is that like the best thing we can be spending our time? Not, you know, that's kind of a different um, topic for another night type of thing. But that's that's what many of us, um, you know, are doing in the schools where we're assessing for special education eligibility. And under the learning disability, I think is where most of our students who, you know, might be dyslexic would be falling under. Um, and sometimes it's hard to convey that, you know, we're looking at a different set of criteria in many cases than what, you know, where maybe the, the diagnosis of dyslexia is coming from. Or I've I had kids that I'm, I recognize, I'm like, I think, yes, this, this is a case of dyslexia. This is a case of dysgraphia. However, this child per state regulations, because they don't, you know, have the need for specially designed instruction or whatnot, you know, doesn't qualify for an IEP. And I think that parents and us, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain that very well, I guess. And I think I, that that's frustrating for parents. I love that you're bringing that up because in that story that I said when I went to the principal and she, you know, she was giving me a speech about how not everybody can be high achievers. At that moment, I remember having such a clear knowing 
that, that I didn't know, I didn't have the confidence or there was no, we didn't have the shared context that I could ever ask her for it. But I remember having such a clear knowing that the only thing I needed for her was for her to look me in the eye and say, I get it. I know it's really hard. And maybe she didn't have access to what I needed. And maybe, you know, she didn't have any teachers that can help me have time and a half and stay late. But for her to be like, we get that you're frustrated. And I know that all your intelligence and your abilities and what you're capable for is not fully shining through. And we're in this together. And I'm going to try to help you as much as possible. I think sometimes we forget what a moment of real intimacy, what real eye contact, what real active listening, reflective listening can do. We get so caught up in really complicated solutions and complicated plans that we forget what, I don't know if it's possible, what the, the, the rules and regulations are around hugging, but we forget what a hug, what a pat on the back, what I totally understand what you're getting going through. I get this can be frustrating. I get you feel like you're not really showing us what you're capable of. I get you feel like you're not really showing us, you know, how much you understand the information. I get that you're smarter than your grades look on, reflect. That kind of active listening can do so much in the trajectory of somebody's life, even if you practically can't do that much. Or let me, you know, here's what I can give you, here's what I can't give you, but um, let me know if there's any other way that I can help. Little things like that, I think, make a world of a difference and are really not that little. I don't know if that's helpful in any way. But that's really helpful, and it addresses, we had a, a viewer question on Facebook um, and I think from what you were saying, maybe I imagine that this is that was part of the answer, that you had people, it wasn't necessarily people at school, but you had people in your life, in your life that were was saying that to you, that, you know, I, I, I get it, and but, you know, you have to make this decision. You have to go back to school, basically. Um, but the question is, how did Ella Shiva develop the skill set to address her academic difficulty? So I'm, I'm connecting the two because um, – I imagine that a part part of your the skill set you developed came from that place of understanding and reflection and validation of your feelings. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So for me, no, I had almost no technological assessment. Assess no. I'm getting all tongue tongue tied over here, but tech assistance. Um, and I was after high school. I began really researching learning disabilities, dyslexia. And I came across all these blogs on technological assistance, and I got very into audiobooks and text-to-speech and speech-to-text, and that just completely transformed my academic experience. Classes that I was getting C's in, all of a sudden I had access to get like A's in. It was so dramatic how such simple fixes really opened things up. And the second thing was just getting more and more comfortable with understanding the way that I learned. So, for example, if I had a textbook and I had to read a chapter in a textbook, I would read what the chapter headings were. And if it was all about history, I would then go on YouTube and listen to a lecture about it or take out a documentary. And knowing that I always need to first understand the big picture. And then even if I read inaccurately or I misread something, I'll still have the overall the broad structure to be able to organize the information. And so getting clearer on how I learn and having more control over the ways that I learn and using tech assistance, I think those were the things that made a big difference. Love that. That's great. I, I think that self-awareness um, that each as each child develops that self-awareness and self-understanding and and also self-compassion. Those three things so important. We have another um, great uh, viewer question, and it is: 
Do, do you have any thoughts about some of the information out on the web regarding various subtypes of dyslexia, surface, dysphonic, mixed dyslexia? Yeah, so there's a lot of controversy around, around these if they are actual categories. The two categories that I find very helpful is stealth dyslexia and regular dyslexia. And what stealth dyslexia is, is these are the students that they say they love reading. They're, all, they're either they're always reading or they say they've never had a difficult time reading. And yet at the same time, what's actually happening is they're reading inaccurately, but because their ability for gist and for context is so strong, which is naturally already a dyslexic strength, it doesn't hold them back as long as they're reading novels and as long as they're reading topics, um, books that they have a lot of information around and that there's a predictable sentence structure. But a lot of these stealth dyslexics that grew up loving novels and when they were in elementary school, they devoured books by the time they get to middle school and they have to read textbooks and they have to read lots of terms that they're unfamiliar with. All of a sudden, the underlying difficulty with decoding and phonetic awareness begins to show. Um, and that's why it's super important to see if, if it's a stealth dyslexia thing going on. Because what often happens is when we talk about dyslexia, we talk about difficulty with, with reading. And it's so frustrating for these students because they love reading and they're always reading before they go to bed. And they don't see themselves as somebody that has difficulty reading, even though they have difficulties with the underlying decoding that will definitely show up as they go to university and as they get to high school level and it's denser text and it's text that doesn't have a predictable sentence structure. They don't have any background on and you can't kind of just figure it out from the gist. So that's why not just asking students, do you like to read, do you not like to read, but being a little bit more specific. Okay, we have a bunch of questions coming in, so if I, I hope I'm not jumping around too much, but I want to make sure we answer our viewer questions. Um, as school providers, there's so much information and viewpoints regarding identification of dyslexia. What might be your approach to identification? Hmm. So it's so interesting because I tend to deal on the other end of the spectrum, and I'm dealing with the parents, and I think it's so helpful for the parents to understand if it's even just like a dyslexic processing style, even if it can't be identified as dyslexia, if there's somewhere on the spectrum, I think dyslexia is a spectrum. Um, and I think there are some people, especially if you have dyslexia in the family, there's a dyslexic parent, dyslexic grandparent. If you're starting to see signs and you understand that as dyslexic processing style, just in terms of a parent, it's so important to understand that so you can help your child understand the ways that they learn fast, help them with assistive technology at home, but it's completely different um, in terms of identification in the school system. That has a lot more to do with assessments and IEPs and 504 plans. What was the exact question? What might be her approach to identification? So um, um, there's a lot of controversy over the discrepancy model that I'm sure you guys are familiar mm -hmm. with and I'm sure you guys deal with all the time. And uh, should I explain? I, I, don't, I don't know. What what background? Should I explain a little bit about the discrepancy model and the controversy around? I think we're I think we're all probably pretty good on the discrepancy model. <laughs> um. So what what uh what are my approach to identification? So I think that obviously you're working under the IDA and you're working under the limitations under the IDA, which is pretty 
specific. I don't know if the question is even if you can't be identified under IDA standards, if I think it, if you think it might be helpful to think in terms of dyslexic processing style-like behavior, I think definitely that might be helpful for students that still might not qualify to specific the specific diagnosis to still think about think uh, little different learning styles and dyslexia in terms of spectrum and strengths and weaknesses and kind of just a general map of where some of the strengths might be, where some of the weaknesses might be as a, as a springboard for exploration and self-discovery, not necessarily as in like I am or I'm not or, you know, mm -hmm. just as something that might be an interesting tool. There's another question that I, I'm not sure about this one, but we'll throw it out there and see what you think. Is there a genetic similarity between dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia and dyspraxia and ADHD. Have you researched in beyond um, dyslexia? Have you learned yeah, about yeah. that? It's so interesting. I'm so glad it came up. There is the same exact the same exact genetic phenotype that, that you see in dyslexia, you see in dyspraxia and dyslexia and um, a couple I think possibly some types like um, some types of ADHD like inattentiveness, not necessarily hyperactivity. Um, and why this is so interesting is because you see in some families, the mom is dyslexic and the child isn't dyslexic, but is dysgraphic. Underlining all of these tends to be the same, um, tends to be the same trade-off with big picture at the expense of detail. And it seems to be that there are other environmental factors, both within the womb and in the developmental process of um, gestation and early birth experiences, early childhood, that seems to trigger on the predisposition why, um, trigger on and off the genes, why it manifests in some children as dyslexia, some children as dysgraphia. But it's so interesting because in the same families, you sometimes see like a grandfather that had difficulty with like dyscalculia, um, which is dyslexia, which is dysgraphia. But it sounds really disparate, but then if you zoom the lens out and you think in terms of broader thinking styles, they are pretty similar, it's just manifesting in the classroom in a little bit different places. It's very interesting. The, the, the genetic research on this is still very new. It's something that I'm curious about. People are doing a lot of research in. And um, yeah. It is really interesting. I, I, I can see them, I mean, in my mind, I think of them as so related because there's a, an element of sort of the, of how we process symbols in whether it's um, letters or numbers, you know, um, and then in sound, the parts of our brain that deal with sound, the sound symbol connection, whether where whether that's you know connected to inter our like internal voice we're reading in our in our heads and hearing that, or whether we're you know um, listening. I don't know. It's I think that's very interesting. And the more we learn about the brain and the parts that are responsible for different things, I think the more information will come out on that. And I think it's interesting too, I mean, there's a, it's a whole kind of a mess I feel like out there as far as where people stand on a lot of this stuff. And I mean, we've had guests on here too that I think we would disagree that even the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses that that even ties to academic um, achievement. Um, and we're gonna have a guest on, um, I 
think in the spring who's done research and you know we all look at CHC theory as kind of um, where many of us base our psychological processing um, strengths and weaknesses on and he has some research that maybe that's not really a thing and so it's it's so confusing to me but so interesting all these different pieces that kind of come together or sometimes don't come together and are just our evolving understanding of it I think that it, it changes so constantly as our um, understanding gets better. Um, just yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really is. That's why it's a fun field for me to do weekly podcasts because whenever I think it's been thoroughly exhausted, I'm like, wait, I'm confused. I better have somebody else come on the show and explain something else to me because it seems like, and, and there really is not a lot of consensus and it does seem to be that, that um, individuals and the field itself is really there's a lot of controversy within the field and at odds with each other. And, you know, I've gone to dyslexia conferences and like at the conference, the different keynote speakers are like saying different things or mm -hmm. there's like one head of a big dyslexia conference. I will not name the names that got up and said that there are no scientific studies that show that there are strengths to the dyslexic crossing style. So after his talk, I said, I'm so excited to talk to you because I've been spending the last five years talking to individuals involved in research, researching this particular thing. Like, have you heard of this person, this person, this person, this person, this person? Like, so he didn't look into it at all, but he was just like, I'm uncomfortable with that statement. That makes me uncomfortable that there might be strengths with dyslexia crossing stuff. So, um, yeah, not to say that there aren't people that really have explored this thoroughly and have come to a different conclusion, which, of course, it's important to constantly be, be grappling with these questions and it, using this scientific method as much as possible to coming to solutions. Um, but I also think there's a lot of, you know, us versus them mentality around this as well. And people get, like, tribal about their opinions and, and really graspy to what their perspectives. But um, it's confusing and it's important to just... I think put one foot in front of the next and try to be helpful and make sense of, of, of it a little bit at a time. And I want to say too that when I'm talking about strengths and weaknesses, I don't want anyone to think that I, I'm saying that, you know, I don't think anyone's out there saying that, well, maybe there are. I don't, like you said, um, that, you know, dyslexic people don't have these strengths. Um, I was more so talking about like the profile strengths and weaknesses model. Sorry. Oh. Um, just, just if anybody, I, as we were talking, I was like, oh, I hope that, you know, um, I wasn't confusing people with that because, you know, one of our, like you'd mentioned the dis, uh, the discrepancy model, like my district now uses a profile strengths and weaknesses. So we look for the processing strength, we look for the processing weakness, you know, um, type of thing. Um, and if that is a real thing or not, some of our guests have said that, but um, yeah, sorry, I'm confusing things. <laughs> no, not at all. So, so many viewers and so many great questions. Um, so I want to jump right to the next one. Our, our reader says, I'm curious about thoughts about screening for dyslexia K-5 first grades um, so that intervention can begin early. What do you think about those early screeners? That's a good question. I've thought about it. I, don't, I feel like I don't know enough. Um, I know a lot of people are hesitant to screen too early. I think that um, if, if you have a preschool teacher or a first grade teacher that's talking, I mean, first grade already, you can usually see the signs that saying these are signs for dyslexia. Definitely as parents, keep your eyes peeled. If you have a family history of dyslexia, then definitely there are signs that you will see in pre-K and first grade. In terms of getting a full-on diagnosis, I'm not sure, I'm curious about what your opinions, what do you think? 
Yeah, you know, I I like that. I, I like to, you know, when I have questions about those younger kids in my mind, I like to, um, without formal assessment maybe, I like to just keep those in mind and kind of continue to collect more information about those students and, um, you know, and through an RTI process, if it most, most, hopefully most schools have a good one, um, kids are getting supports that they may need based on what teachers are learning about them. And so just, you know, thinking about it that way. If, um, but I remember, um, Reading Rockets is a, is a nice website for early readers that has a wonderful article for parents on some of these early um, signs that you might look for. It doesn't mean that your child necessarily um, may have dyslexia in the future, but it, they are sort of signs that um, they need some specific skill skills um, lessons or um you know, some specific kinds of teaching that could be helpful because truly Orton Gillingham is, is, you know, I think a nice approach for any student learning how to read. Um, so some of those practices are really helpful and fun. Um, and a related question, do you find that phonolo a phonological approach is more effective than reading an entire word or having kids memorize sight words? Yes. Yes, and and like the phono, the Orin Gilligan based programs deal with this like extensively how yeah. to how to teach reading for dyslexics that are most effective. Right. I think we just have Angie's question left now. She's curious about the best approach for schools to take for treatment of dyslexia in comparison to more broad based services for learning disability. Um, what would you recommend specifically as a in treatment for dyslexia in schools? The Orton and Gillingham. Yeah, I think I think the Orton Gillingham based program is for the reading, writing, and literacy skills. I think depending on the different ages, as the kids get a little early, get a little older, you definitely want to start introducing assistive tests. You want to help them understand their learning style as best as possible. And what I always tell people as they begin discussing learning styles with students. For many students, especially like when they begin to understand this concept around middle middle school age, it's very overwhelming. You're like asking them, how do you learn best? When you watch a video, when you watch a YouTube, when you write essays on a question. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know if this is really the real me if I'm answer really answering the question correctly. And so I think it's very important to frame the question as you don't need to know the answer, but this is something that I want you to be curious about, curious about throughout your life. Whenever you're in a learning environment and you're like, I love this learning environment. This is super easy for me, whether it's a podcast, whether it's your watch a video. I want you to take notice of it and say, hmm, this comes easy to me. If ever you're in an environment and you're really struggling, I want you to notice that. So it's less about like you need to know right now, you know, all the ways in which you learn best because that can be very overwhelming, even for a high school student. And then they get nervous. Maybe I said the wrong thing. Maybe I said that this is a learning style that I learned well in, but I was wrong. And it's more about just this constant process of un developing underlying musculature for being self-aware and understanding yourself. More and more that will happen as you grow up and as you explore yourself more and become more and more self-aware, it becomes like a cycle. I had a question too. I know we got through um, all of our viewers and if anybody um, has last minute questions too, because we're getting close to wrapping, um, send those in. But we talked about your, you talked about, um, you know, some of the early um, interventions and identification and things like that. Um, 
do you see, I see a lot of dyslexia screeners coming out. Like, I think as schools are using the term more and more, um, the test companies are maybe marketing these dyslexia screeners. And I, I don't know much about them, but part of me is a little bit suspicious that maybe, oh, this is something that people are talking about. So let's push push yeah. these screeners because this is a good money maker for us. Is, is there any concern for that or am I just being like super paranoid? Uh, there should for sure be concern for that. I'm trying to remember. I feel like this might be accurate or this might not be accurate, but I was trying to get hold of somebody that I think she's researching all the screeners out on the market and seeing which ones are effective and which ones are. Uh, I think it's definitely important to be very critical consumers um, about this kind of information. But I think like I, I answer this a little bit differently for everybody else and for people that are involved in the school. I mean, we live in a culture that teaches us this kind of model of, you know, you are, you aren't. Like, you are dyslexic or you're not dyslexic. Like, it, it's like you have a broken bone and you can get an x-ray and somebody will very quantitatively tell you yes or no. And I think the most helpful way of looking at these things for the dyslexics themselves and their families and as children as an adults is just really being reflective on the ways that you learn and if you feel like for whatever reason decoding written text is cumbersome and laborious for you and it's much more helpful to think of yourself in terms of somebody that does better auditorily or visually and if you notice that there's some kind of thinking style in which you do have a difficult time with procedural type information or two-dimensional visuals and you know a lot of memorization and a lot of detail-oriented things and you really excel with big picture and creativity and innovation if that's a helpful way to explain yourself then i think that there's this like we we, we want to know quantitatively and i think that until we can look at like neuro until we can scale neuro imaging techniques and find some way for everybody to really see which areas of their brain light up we're not going to have those concrete answers but it's more about like i was saying before the self awareness which if this is a helpful way to think about yourself and helpful language then i think it's helpful and if it doesn't help you explain your students if it doesn't help you explain the people that come into your office if it doesn't help them make sense out of their life then maybe it's less helpful obviously that is totally different ballpark than what you guys are usually dealing with which is with accommodations and ida and which is much more concrete but i think it's building it's a lot of it is is like in actuality dyslexia in the brain isn't that concrete I mean, it's not concrete, like we can just get an x-ray and just see right away. Um, but there, there, I didn't mean that there aren't real neurobiological differences in terms of processing, there are. Okay. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Any last final comments or plugs? Uh, your website is elishevashwartz.com. And the podcast is The Dyslexia Quest. It's on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Um, at the Dyslexia Quest on Instagram, there's quite a big following of people that are following, and Ellie Shepard Schwartz on Facebook. And um, it's such a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for inviting me into the community. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation, and I, I'm going to keep it with me as I'm supporting kiddos in my schools, and I'm sure everyone out there will be doing the same. Thank you so much. Thank All you. Right. Good night. We'll